So what if you had a Me Too experience, but it didn't go to completion? What if somebody attacked you in a parking lot and tried to rape you, but it didn't happen because you got lucky, you screamed, the person couldn't get all the way into the car, and just so happens that a cop around the corner heard you and was able to come save you. Does that mean that you didn't have that experience? Does it mean that your experience was any less important than other people's experiences? What about the violations of your space or your security? How are you supposed to move forward? What happens when you bury that idea and you bury that trauma and then you try to go on and live your life? What happens in midlife? These are the questions that Susan Schoenberger asks in her new book, The Liabilities of Love, is how trauma can reverberate through a woman's life. And I've seen it and we've encountered it before. When I was running More Magazine, one of the interesting things we did is when the Me Too, moment, Me Too movement hit, we actually went around and talked to a lot of women who came out for the first time and talked about trauma that had happened to them earlier in life that they buried and they didn't wanna talk about and they thought it was not important or they thought it was not worthy of being spoken about or the people that did it were too big and powerful to go up against. So I think it's a wonderful conversation. Not only did Susan have to reinvent herself, she was a reporter at newspapers. And of course, as you know, from listening to this podcast, those jobs are all going out of business. So what do you do? How do you reinvent yourself? How do you become a novelist? Can you do it? What are the segues that you make? What about when you have three kids and you can't just take off? and uh, go get a degree in MFA. How do you do it without an MFA? Those are all the things we discuss here with Susan and I hope that you'll enjoy it. So Susan, welcome, so glad to see you. Thank you so much, thank you for having me. Awesome, so um, I wanted to make sure that um, we talk about your personal reinvention because you're a, a refugee from the same kind of business I was in. And then we want to talk about your book, The Liabilities of Love, and how that creates reinvention opportunities for women. And so let's talk a little bit about your history. How did you get into journalism and, and what did you study when you were in school? Um, in college, I was an English major and um, I really wanted to be a writer of some kind. Um, I think at the time I was toying with the idea of writing fiction, but I kind of felt like I needed more experience in the world. I needed to kind of learn how to write. Um, and so many people encouraged me to go into newspapers. And at the time, this was in the you know mid eighties, it was pretty easy to get a newspaper job. You, you applied and if you were willing to sort of go where the jobs were, you um, were able to become a reporter and get that um, great experience of writing every day and having great editors work with you and um, you know sort of building those skills that every writer needs to have. So I worked at various jobs as a reporter. Um, you know you kind of bump around early in, in the business to move from one 
smaller newspaper to a slightly bigger newspaper to a slightly bigger one. So I went through um, three or four small papers and ended up at the Baltimore Sun, which was a great experience for me. Um, and I worked there as a copy editor. Um, and then I ended up moving to Hartford and where I am now and where my, my book is actually set. Um, and we've been here for 25 years almost. And I spent about half of that at the Hartford Current. Um, and I mentioned that in 2008, um, that that was about when the economy imploded, but also journalism kind of fell off a cliff. And um, everyone who worked at the, the paper at that time was given an opportunity to take a buyout. And I took one thinking like, I'll, I'll find another job and I'll, I'll be able to work in you know, journalism in some capacity. And um, that turned out not to be the case. So what did you do when you were confronted with that? Did you, did you apply to a lot of different places originally? I applied, I mean, this is gonna sound really sad, but don't feel sorry for me, it worked out. But I applied to maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 jobs over a period of two years. I did a lot of freelance work, um, which is not highly paid. And right. um, I kind of struggled with that because I don't really enjoy that that mode of working. And I, made, I met, tons of people had, you know, informational interviews kind of really worked to, to figure out where I could fit into the economy because it just wasn't what I had done in the past. So eventually I took a job um, working for an online news organization. Um, I didn't love that job, but it was a job that I could do. And luckily I developed a lot of skills in that job. You know, that was kind of the blossoming of social media and, and video and all of the things that, you know, are sort of part of, need to be part of the toolbox now. So I learned all of that, you know, at that point in my um, maybe mid forties, late forties, and um, eventually got the job that I have now, which is as a, uh, a director of communications at a, a small graduate school. And that's a job I love. And that job wouldn't have come to me if I hadn't gone through that whole experience of having to spend a couple years writing freelance, spend a couple years doing a job I didn't so much love, um, but gaining those skills that I needed to become a communications person. And so how is that, what skills did you pick up that allowed you to segue over. I, I asked that because I found that I was on a track to get my degree in sustainability at Columbia because I saw that magazines were dying. Yeah. And um, I knew I couldn't take on another magazine. It was just too depressing. And I didn't end up doing anything in sustainability. I got my degree, but I was too tracking because the Covey Club thing happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. And yet all the digital skills I learned where I learned at Columbia, not in publishing, which was shocking that like, I would really not been digitally savvy coming out of um, publishing. Exactly. That that's pretty much my story too. I working for this online organization, which was a startup, um, you know, we were just, it was almost like running a small business. We had to 
do our own analytics and learn how to um, edit video, learn how to, um, you know, crank out <laughs> news stories several a day, as opposed to, you know, working for um, a daily newspaper where, you know, that would be pretty rare to, to write several stories in a day. Um, you know, learning the social media piece and how to um, combine that with the reporting and the, uh, the other skills that I had from working in newspapers. Um, and also just the independence of it, kind of being in charge of your own, um, this was a particular sort of micro site that covered a town. So um, there was really no one looking over my shoulder. And so that the quality of it had, it was really up to me. And, um, and that's a little scary. Uh, because I'm I'm a great believer in editing and copy editing, but um, but that was, I think that gave me the confidence to go into an interview with this graduate school and say, you know, I I think I can help you with um, getting your message out to the public because I felt like I had that um, that background. And how did you get into book writing then? And talk a little bit about your previous books. Yeah, um, well, you know, this was sort of a dream of mine from childhood. I loved to read as a kid. I was always had my nose in a book. And um, I just, to me, it just seemed like, you know, going to Mars. I just thought, oh, the people who write these books are, are geniuses and they do things that no one else can do. And I, I sort of couldn't even imagine how... I would reach that point where I felt like that was something that I could could tackle. So I think for, for many, many years, I just kind of thought about it, put it on the back burner, maybe occasionally tried writing a short story. Um, but I think in my early 30s, I think I'd already had one, one of my three kids. Um, I was kind of, you know, jogging one day and I came up with this idea that I thought would would make a great novel. And I started that process of, of writing it. And I realized, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I, I sort of persevered and I did contact agents and an attempt to get that first book out there. And I, I got some great feedback from people. This was kind of before agents were as overwhelmed as, as they are these days. And people were kind to uh, kind enough to write to me and say, you know, there's really something here, but you you need to work on your your writing skills, and you need to, um, you know, kind of learn from other people and 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 get your craft in place. So I started going to some writing conferences and, you know, trying to learn. I didn't have time at the time. I had three young young kids in my 30s, and I I didn't have time to go back and get an MFA which have been wonderful, but um, instead I kind of did my own MFA. I sort of treated it like, okay, I'm gonna read the people I really love and respect and try to dissect what they do and figure it out for myself. So I, I did that as much as possible. I worked on this first book and that book, as any of you who are writers listening will, will understand, has never been published because it, it never, got to that level of being good enough. Um, but then I went back 
to writing short stories, got a couple of those published, came up with another idea for a novel. And um, through a long process of um, some entering contests that kind of built up my confidence a little bit after winning a few things. And I did get an agent in 2007 um, and I still have that agent today. And that has, that really helped me feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I must be a little bit legit because otherwise this agent wouldn't want to work with me. And she ended up selling my first book in 2010. That's amazing. Yeah, the big stumbling block. I mean, though today is very different. I, I, I've brought on people because there are a lot of writers in Covey Club and mm -hmm. a lot of writers among our reinventors. Um, but it's so different today. I mean, you cannot even approach an agent. It's almost impossible. You have to almost figure out ways around them and to get noticed or self-publish and then find an agent afterwards, it seems like. It's just kind of crazy. It, it is tough. And I, I felt like it was tough even, even then. Right. Um, and, and I didn't have any connections in the business, but I will say, because I do talk to my own agent, um, you know, and I know from her that they really are looking for new voices. And even though they are overwhelmed with um, queries, they are out there kind of, it's exciting for them when they can discover somebody um, that they think they can sell. And um, so I do encourage people like not to kind of give up. The problem is you just have to invest so much time and energy when you also need to be writing. So, um, you know, for people to be looking for agents, they can't get discouraged by getting, um, you know, five rejections or 10 rejections. I, I had to contact 40 different agents and now people will sometimes say it's, you know, it's more like a hundred. So it's, it's super challenging, but if you're com if you believe in yourself and you believe that that is the way that you want to be published, um, then it's, it's worth trying. So talk, what was the first book about? Um, so my first book is called A Watershed Year. And that book was, uh, came about, it was based on a short story that I wrote and, um, is based on a young woman who is a college professor who um, loses her dear friend to to cancer and he writes has written emails to her he knows he's dying so he's written these emails kind of post-dated so that she'll receive them um, after he dies and he kind of talks to her about um, things that he was never able to tell her in person and it also becomes an adoption story. She eventually ends up adopting a child from Russia. Um, so that that's part of the story as well. But it's funny because it came out in the same year that this the movie P.S. I Love You came out, which was had sort of a similar theme of, you know, letters written by someone who had died. Um, so it got a little bit buried in that um, the hype for that. That's that that is also just something that happens in the business. You can't control what you can't <laughs> control. We're all learning that. Oh my God, you just have to control your reaction to it, right? Exactly. How you handle it. Right. So let's talk about the liabilities of love. How did you get to this theme? First, talk about what the theme is. 
and how did you get there and why did you decide to approach this thing? So um, I'll tell you that the, the funny thing about this book is that it started out as a kind of a challenge to myself. I had some male characters in my first book. I had some male characters in my second book, um, The Virtues of Oxygen. And I kind of felt like they weren't my best characters. And I, and I thought, you know, I'm going to just challenge myself and try to write some more believable male characters. So I started out with writing from the perspective of um, one of the male characters who's now in the book. And I, I wrote this book with a whole different idea in mind um, with him as the main character. And when my agent first read it, she said, you know, I, like I, I get what you're trying to do here, but that character just isn't the voice that we need to hear. It's this other character. So, and she was right. Cause she's almost always right. So I went back and I wrote it with four different voices, two male voices and two female voices. Cause I still wanted to take on that challenge um, of writing the male perspective. And um, I came up with this idea of a young woman who experiences a traumatic incident. And we should probably say to your viewers as a trigger warning that my, my book does get into a, a sexual assault, um, a date rape. Um, and I decided that, you know, I wanted to kind of explore the idea of what happens if you don't resolve one of these traumas in your life and what kind of decisions do you make um, as you try to go forward and, and try not to be thinking about something that inevitably is gonna come back up for you. Have you done a lot of therapy yourself to know this or did you consult with um, psychologists? Because as um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, um, when I was still running more magazine, when Me Too just erupted, mm -hmm. the way we got it, Me Too ourselves, was we talked to, because I there were so many women in our age group, 40 plus, who had hidden sexual assault mm -hmm. and not confronted it. Um, and it, it was an amazing story. I got about, I think it was eight people from around the country to talk about it for the first time. And it was things they just buried and they'd let the guy go. Um, and then one person, um, it actually did kind of pop out um, like a year later um, and, you know, caused all the trauma came out and she, you know, she got through it, but it, it doesn't go away and it does have to be confronted at some point. How did you know that? Did you talk to psychologists or is that you just intuitive or? Well, I, you know, I have had some therapy myself over the years, but I think, um, you know, I was thinking about this incident that happened to me that I actually wrote about for the, the Covey Club uh, website about an incident that happened when I was, you know, in my mid twenties where I was attacked in a parking lot. Um, you know, by a stranger, which is pretty rare, but that's what happened to me. And I, I wasn't actually sexually assaulted. I was very fortunate in many ways because someone heard me yell, policemen came. Um, but when Me Too happened and I was actually in the process of writing this book and sort of trying to figure out what it was about, 
it hit me in just that way that you describe. It was like, oh my God, that incident from back in the 80s kind of never got resolved for me. And um, there were choices that I made most likely because of carrying around that, that fear. And, um, you know, that's kind of what I ended up looking at in this book. I, I, I wanted to see, you know, what do people do um, when they are actively trying to suppress something that's been traumatic for them? So that's kind of how it, it evolved. And my, my books tend to do this. I tend to start out with one idea and then end up with a completely different one. And when the Me Too movement happened, it was roughly 2017, 18, I was you know, kind of deep into um, working on this book. So that ended up taking it, I would say, probably in kind of a different direction. I'm fascinated that you said to me that um, you were not assaulted, but from reading that piece, you were. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's so interesting how like, you know, there was a, a piece we read early on, which was talking about, um, you know, levels of sexual assault. And if you were, you know, not a celebrity and it wasn't a celebrity person and it wasn't a full on, you know, rape of some sort or something like that, that you felt that you had no voice, that you weren't allowed to say anything because these other people had experienced much worse. So how, how dare you say, you know, my uncle put his hand up my skirt or something like that. And yet those things we find from history are actually equally as traumatizing, surprisingly from a psychological point of view. Absolutely. And I, I, I say that in the piece where, you know, my, my coat never came off. Um, my, you know, many, many people told me how, how lucky I was not to have experienced, you know, a, an, an assault of a different kind, but you're right. It was still an assault. I, I was still, you know, uh, attacked and held down and all of those things, which are really traumatic for anybody. Um, but, you know, it, it really is this idea. And I, as I talk about in the piece that we kind of weigh our trauma on a scale and we say, you know, well, if mine isn't as bad as that other one, then, then I probably don't need to, you know, deal with it or say, or talk about it with other people. So, you know, that's where I think me too has kind of helped everybody see a little better that when we don't tell these stories, we empower people to continue this kind of behavior and, um, you know, kind of keep everybody feeling like, well, what happened to me couldn't have been that bad. Yeah, I think it's that bad, no matter what happens to you, it's that violation of space and violation of security. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's half of the whole thing is how does it, you know, how did this happen to me? And um, what are you finding from women that you talk to who are older? Are you like, what is, are you finding any divides age-wise? I have, I have a personal theory that this whole um, Me Too thing is gonna break down among the millennials and the Zs who have been raised differently and 
are not going to take any of this. And I saw that. This is just my theory. I don't know what you think. I saw that with the whole Andrew Cuomo thing, which is these younger girls are just not going to have any of it. Like they're not going to shrug it off. They're not going to, you touch my shoulder and rub my back. It's just not like, yeah, you mean it in a, you know, nicey old, old guy way. I'm not taking it. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think to some extent that's true. And I know I have two daughters who are both in their twenties and, and for the most part, I would say, yeah, they're not going to um, just stay quiet if somebody in the workplace, for example, says something, you know, inappropriate or whatever. They they would they would let that person have it right to their face. I think, um, no question. But I also think there's still those layers of you know um, fear of upsetting people and fear of um, getting somebody in trouble when, you know, you think, well, was it really that bad? I, I, I think, I think everybody still struggles with that. I think it's still something we have to, we have to cope with and, and get better at. So what's your hope for women who've been through this and have to reinvent themselves or have it in their background and have not dealt with it? What is your thinking? Yeah. I mean, my, my, my thinking is, you know, it's never too late to talk to somebody about this. It's never too late to get professional help. Um, I'm seeing a therapist right now and, and she's helping with me with lots of different things, but, but that's one of the things, you know, even though this happened such a long time ago, um, it's, it's something that if it's still, if you're still thinking about it, it still comes up for you then, um, you know, reach out and maybe you reach out to a friend if you don't want to deal with uh, therapy right away, but reach out or, or write about it. Sometimes writing it out, getting it on the page um, helps you sort of sort out what your own feelings are. So that's what I would encourage people to do. And what if people have suppressed it so much that they, they don't even realize that's what's bugging them? Yeah, I I think um, you know if you're if if there are other things in your life that are that you're struggling with, um, sometimes it's good to kind of look back and say you know where are the things where are the times that I had um, such a difficult time and and didn't really talk about it to anybody you know kept it to myself didn't sort through it. Um, and I think that's where therapy really helps, where somebody can kind of guide you through that process and say, well, let's let's look back and let's try to figure out where some of these difficulties are coming from. Yeah, I'm a veteran of 25 years of therapy. <laughs> so <laughs> um, what I say to people is that um, what's interesting is that I think the way you identify it as something old is you have some kind of incident that's happening in your family or your work and your response is not appropriate. It's way out of line. It's like a two or three level incident, but your response is a 10 uh-huh. and you're crying or you're angry or whatever. That's when you got to say to yourself, now that's odd. Like, mm-hmm. why is that happening? And usually that means something in the past. It's digging up something in the past. It's too familiar um, your little brain is saying, wait a minute, we've been through this before. <laughs> and and really, it's not the same thing, but it's dragging up something old. So um, 
it's a it's a good sign right to look for the un the unexpected response so let's talk about reinvention um and for women who are still you know a lot of covey clubbers come to us for reinvention this podcast is all about reinvention Mm -hmm. a lot of times we are forced to reinvent when we don't want to Mm -hmm. um as i told you before we got on this uh conversation you know, I was forced out of newspapers in my 20s. I loved doing newspapers and um, they were closing and the one I worked for closed and I couldn't find another job. And I, you know, dragged myself into magazines just because there was no other place to go and I had needed a job. So what is your your thinking, especially when you're in, and it, you know, there are many, many sectors because of the changes in tech and things like that, where everything is changing. Mm-hmm. And you may be in your 40s or 50s and your sector may be winding down. And that's kind of what happened to you. What would you suggest for them tactically to move yeah. over to something else? You know, I thought about this um, and I I don't know that I did this when I was trying to make make my a new career for myself, but when I look back, I wish that I had sat down and said, okay, what are, what are my skills? What, what have I learned from, you know, the 25 years in the newspaper business that could be transferable to another job? And then what skills do I need to, to get one of those new jobs? And I'll tell you that as a communications director, I've had to learn, um, all kinds of new software, design software, you know, stuff so that we can create um, brochures and magazines and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, your friend is, is Google and, and there are all kinds of programs or books that would help you um, add those skills to your resume. So I just encourage people, you know, if I could do it in my fifties and figure out how to, (laughs) how to, you know, work, Adobe InDesign, um, then everybody can do it. Um, And then the other thing I would say is just to reach out to people who are doing what you might want to do and, and contact them and say, you know, what, what would your advice be? Um, I reached out to many, many, many authors when I was struggling to find an agent, when I was struggling with that first book and, um, authors are wonderful people who in general are so willing to help. I, I can't tell you how many people were just willing to let me complain <laughs> about how hard it was. And, and maybe I just kind of needed to do that. Um, so, so that's another thing is today in this day and age, almost everybody has a website or social media where you can directly reach out to them and say, um, you know, I'd like your help. Um, is there something you would recommend for me or my situation? And, you know, you might be surprised. Um, you could go pretty far up the ladder and, and people will respond to you. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, you've got nothing to lose really by reaching right. out. Either they never see your outreach or if they're a total jerk and they ignore it, they'll forget anyway, by the next time they see you somewhere or whatever, or your paths may never even cross. Mm -hmm. So what the heck, you know, it's like, I think you have to have a kind of 
you got to be a little bit fearless in terms of, and also humbled by the fact that the internet is so gigantic mm-hmm. and that, you know, a lot of times people, I mean, people that I would help, I don't even see their, they send me a message on some social media and I never even see it. Yeah. So you can't even be sure that they're seeing it. So sometimes you need to reach out in several different places and not worry about being a pain or a pest. Exactly. And I, and I think, and you just never know when you will get that response that might really send you in a different direction or just encourage you to keep going. What was the best response you got? Um, I, I think I, as I was saying before, I got a, a letter from an agent when I was querying for my first book that never got published. And I got a two page typewritten letter from this, this agent who just said the most amazing things to me and gave me examples of books that I should be reading in order to bring my writing up to that level. Wow. Um, and she was, she was on her, she was retiring. She was on her way out. I didn't know anything about it when I, when I queried her, but um, I still have that letter and I, I occasionally bring it out to show people when I'm you know teaching a class or talking about trying to find an agent, but just that, that, that effort that she put into encouraging me to say, you know, I see something here that I think is valuable, but you're not there yet. And here's what you need to do to get there. And that was huge. I mean, that probably kept me going Mm -hmm. for a long time. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, awesome. Susan, thank you a million, million times for spending the time with us. I'm hoping that everybody will go check out all your books as well as your new one. And they can also come and see your piece on coveyclub.com, which is great. And um, that's a great topic. I will be interested to see what it breaks open for a lot of women because it's very serious topic. And you really, it's very hard to move on with these various kinds of trauma if you just try to bury it. And I always say it's harder to face your issues than it is to run away from them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Um, Right. And thank you again. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you got a lot out of this conversation with Susan. And I hope that You've got some reinvention tips if you want to reinvent yourself as a novelist coming from wherever you are on that writing spectrum. And I hope that you've got some positivity about agents actually looking for new voices, as she says, which is fantastic. If you're interested in more reinvention, I hope you will listen to the rest of the podcast. I hope that if you know people who are looking to reinvent themselves, you will pass the podcast along to them. Please subscribe, leave us a comment, leave us some stars if you're so minded and come on over to Covey Club. At Covey, we deal with reinvention in all ways, even people who are stuck. We have had great success with helping to get you out of that stuck position as I say, We can't tell you what your reinvention is, but Covey Club can hold a space for you while you reinvent. 
That's why I call us Google for Women 40 Plus, but analog. What I do is find the services and products to put in front of you while you reinvent. And that will help you reinvent so you don't have to go looking for them. So one of those products is our wonderful download called 31 Tips and Tricks for Launching Your Reinvention Without Fear. And you can find it on the Covey Club site and just go over to coveyclub.com. And if you pull down the connect bar, you will see it pop right up. And that's, those are my best tips for getting you started. So I hope you enjoy those and I hope you'll come join us again. Thanks a lot, be good.